listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Leon and talking about his adoption journey. Hi Leon. Hello, how are you? I'm absolutely fine. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really delighted. It's really lovely to have you. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and about your adoption journey? Sure. Um, like you said, my name is Leon. I'm a 41-year-old single adopter um, living in London at the moment. I adopted my son uh, about a year and a half ago um, as a single adopter. And it's been an interesting period, um, obviously with covid 19 and the lockdowns kind of like within the first full 12 months that has had its challenges but it's been fantastic and I've really enjoyed every every moment I guess. I mean you literally adopted the worst time possible (laughs) didn't you in that regard? (laughs) I guess no matter how much you plan and prepare I think once you're once it's all done and dusted it's almost like it's showtime you know we obviously attended training and prep groups and I had a lot of information from a lot of people that is so useful and I still refer to it to this day. But essentially, I always say there's no rule book for parenting. And there are lots of books on parenting, but when you're in a situation, you just you just roll with it, or at least I do anyway. So you're a single guy, and mm-hmm. that's still relatively rare in the adoption process, adopting as a single guy. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit about how you came to the decision and then how it was for you going through that process um I've said this a few times it's it's funny because I always saw myself as a single adopter from the age of 18 19 when I wanted to adopt I just visualized me adopting alone and I can't say why that is I have no idea and you know at the time when I uh, applied um, or inquired about you know, going through the process, I was single at the time. And I guess I've just been busy. (laughs) I've been very busy the last (laughs) 18 months. So it hasn't really been a priority. But in terms of how it was going through the process, I guess it was the same as everybody else. I mean, my process was super quick. It's definitely quicker than most couples that I know. Um, I'm not sure if that's because I'm single or not. Um, But it, it hasn't been a hindrance to me, I don't think. Were you worried that you'd be viewed with suspicion? Because I've heard that from other men, that they feel that if they approach saying, I want to be a dad on my own, mm-hmm. that everyone sort of looks at them sideways a little bit. Did you experience any of that or even worry about that? Not at all. It never came into my radar, really. And I think on the contrary, most people that I speak to and tell, they're like, oh, my God, high five. You know, well done. It's it's almost celebrated. In fact, it's always celebrated because although you say it is rare, it's not that, from my experience, I don't think it's super, super rare. I mean, I've got a lot of dads in my network in the UK, but mainly in the US, actually, who are single adopters or foster care so it's not as common as people think sorry not as rare as people think (laughs) I've spoken to some guys who are thinking about doing it Mm -hmm. and they always seem to be reaching out for those other people that are doing it as well Mm -hmm. which I think you do when you aren't seeing those role models around you so it's interesting that you say that in the states you're seeing Mm -hmm. it but I know that at New Family Social we get a few single guys ring us and say mm-hmm. look do you know anybody else that's done this and we can say yeah we do and this is how you contact them you know yeah. so yeah. yeah yeah that has happened I mean I my um when I was going through the process there was another single single black adopter actually that my social worker put me in touch with um and we had a few chats we yet to meet actually but I found him really useful and again it's having that person who's relatable and you know he gave me a lot of really useful tips 
Um, and I spoke to another couple, and they were really um, useful, friendly as well. So, yeah, I mean, it is good to have people that have been in your situation, because when you're a single parent or single adopter, it is very different. And I think unless you have someone who shared your experiences, you may go into it a bit blind, dare I say. Yes. What were your biggest fears of going into it, do you think? In general or as a single adopter? I was thinking specifically as a single adopter, but I guess we've all got lots of fears, so many. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, Tor, this is something that has been in the back of my mind and sometimes the forefront of my mind for, for 20 years before I actually adopted. So I feel like by the time I made that call to inquire, I was ready. You know, I'd just moved into my house. Well, not just, but I'd moved into my house within the last couple of years. I'd renovated it, extended it, decorated it. It was all in preparation for that moment. So when I picked up the call on that day, which would have been sometime in February, March 2018, it was all all guns blazing. I was good to go. So I didn't really go into it with any reservations or even any fears, if I'm completely honest with you. That's really nice. It really sounds like you were on a path, that you were very clear and very mm-hmm. focused. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean... When I bought this house in 2016, I bought it with the intention of it being a family house. And I there's, there's a family home that I had in Sheffield when I was younger, which is where I'm from. And that always, it, it, such, it has such sentimental feelings because in my heart, it was like the, the proper family home. Like it just, the size, the aesthetic. And I always wanted to recreate something like that. So when I viewed this place, although it was in the worst condition out of probably 15 houses that I viewed I had a vision of what I wanted it to look like so Mm. the planning really started from then you know so yeah I think I was really prepared actually looking back so you've been a single dad now for how long since your son arrived I adopted him in April 2019 so a year and a half kind of yeah okay and What what I've been, again, focusing on being a single parent, mm-hmm. what's been the real benefits of doing it that way? That is just the two of you. I know a couple of parents where I feel like their parenting style is not maybe aligned. So that can be quite confusing and mm. conflicting. So being that sole parent, um, sole carer, every, it's kind of, I think it's easier in a way. Um, obviously, it's got its pros and cons um but I think just the benefit is really just having that time to really bond with your child especially if it's a child that's had a traumatic background or a child that's you know had lots of movements I think it's really beneficial just to kind of create that bond yeah I can understand that because in my family so we're five in our household and so if you draw I know um I don't know what I was thinking but um But, you know, if you drew a line for each relationship between us, mm-hmm. it forms this really complex little star. Yeah. And I feel like we end up managing all of those relationships. And I include a relationship between the adults, mm-hmm. between each adult and each child, between each child and each other child. And there's sort of a, a complexity to that. And it demands quite a lot of our child that's probably the most vulnerable one to mm-hmm. maintain all these relationships. So I can really imagine that for a child that's struggling or that needs to form an attachment that feels Mm -hmm. reliable to them Mm -hmm. that very simplicity of one line between you and him and him Mm -hmm. and you and that's it and that's what you focus on I can see that that would be a real benefit yeah I think so and I think um 
I think he would be fine either way because he's got such an amazing character and personality. And I always say this, and I don't want to come across one of those gushing parents like, oh my God, my child's amazing. <laughs> but he actually is, considering his past, and he's so resilient, he's so sociable, friendly. Everybody who meets them is like, oh my God, but even from the first couple of months, like I cannot believe you've only just adopted him. Like it's like he's always been here. He's just slotted into my family and friendship groups perfectly like it's not I'm, I'm so lucky I really think I'm so lucky because I appreciate that's not everybody's experience but he's just amazing so I think that really helps yeah you do sound like a really proud dad but I think that's fine I think you're allowed to be <laughs> did you feel that from moment one when yeah. you became his parent because for some people it grows over time well the thing is um I guess it's really weird when you're a doctor but I have spoken to birth parents birth mothers um like my friends for example and they they've even said when they've had a baby they've kind of felt some of them it's been love at first sight but others although they obviously love their baby they've almost felt oh I'm, I'm a mother now I'm supposed to feel like this I'm supposed to feel like that and I think they've almost felt guilty sometimes because it hasn't felt instant I don't really feel like I had that feeling our kind of introduction was was very different because usually um, as I'm sure you know you have um once you've been matched with the child you have a period of time where you do introductions and that's when you really get to meet them for the first time my situation was different I actually um did a bump into meeting so I was able to meet my son to be at the time and his foster care in a play centre um, so my first actual experience of him was basically me me walking into a play centre, greeting his foster carer, him looking at me and saying, do you want to play with me? And I was like, okay. And then that was it. It was almost like he decided at that moment that I was going to be his dad. And I remember it was so weird because I only had an hour there. I almost felt like, well, you've got an hour to decide if this is going to be your child. And there wasn't that pressure on me, but because it was such an unnatural yeah. situation, and I was trying to think about all these scenarios, but still trying to engage with him at the same time and trying to like look at his character, his personality, you know, it was really weird. Like it was, it was a beautiful experience, but I remember just feeling quite overwhelmed, but having to be really chilled as well, because essentially <laughs> it was almost like trial. It sounds silly to even say it as that, but do you know what I mean? It was just, yeah, it was a weird situation. And I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, this boy has got so much energy. Um, and he was like jumping around. I'm just like, oh my God, how am I going to go? <laughs> I think, okay, like trying to keep up with my, my stiff back. I've got, I have a few back issues. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, um, this is going to be interesting but I left there and I thought <laughs> he's mine like there was no doubt Aww. like I just could see him with my family I could see him with my friends it was just a done deal from from then and then um what they decided was weekly FaceTimes were allowed which again is unheard of considering I hadn't even had a matching panel by then yeah so I think everyone was just on the same path so we're having weekly FaceTime so by the time we were matched um and then I went to the foster carer's house for dinner on the day that I was matched so by the time it came to introductions we had a bond anyway so I was just known as his foster carer's friend Leon from London but you know we'd mm. had FaceTimes we'd met twice I'd sent him a few little presents up so it was kind of a done deal from the get-go <laughs> oh that's really lovely it's really lovely that you were able to sort of have that time but it is the weirdest thing isn't it you look at this child and you're thinking oh god do I commit to this child for life yeah. like for life you know it's I remember when when we were given our son like on the final day of intros when the foster carers were driving away mm-hmm. and the child was in the car seat and and I was looking at him and thinking oh god 
I've got to like know where he is at all times. I've got to like now be responsible and yeah. not accidentally lose him or something. Yeah. And for some reason, the thought of having to track his whereabouts was the thing that I was, I, I have to know where he is until he's 18. Mm-hmm. And it was just this moment of this responsibility being mm-hmm. handed. Like, there you go. Yeah. There's a child. You're yeah. like, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Your life just changed literally in one day. Um, yeah. I mean, I completely. think, how old was was your son when he came to you? 14 months, so he was little. Yeah, because um, obviously my little boy was four four years and three months old, so he'd had a you know fully formed personality, cheeky little character. Unfortunately, yeah. I'd had a few homes before, so I was almost inheriting this like little person that was already you know very outspoken and very confident, and I, it was just. <laughs> I always wondered would it be different if I had him from birth? I think so, but I think it suited me being a single parent to have him at this age that makes sense yeah no it completely does do you do you almost wonder about those years the years before yes and no no because I've got a lot of information about those years um there's there's got lots of memory boxes I'm in touch with the 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 past two lots of different foster carers you know I always ask a lot of questions so I feel like I've got a lot of understanding and knowledge of his time before me I've got baby pictures as well, which many people don't have. So, Mm. you know, I think, I think a lot of, depending on what the age of the child that comes to you, I think a lot of adopters do sometimes worry and think about the past. And, but I try not, I mean, I can't have any control over what happened before I was, I came into his life. So, you know, whereas some of it wasn't great at the same time, it is his past, but it's also part of his story. And then we do have conversations at times depending on if he's going through a bit of a tricky time. So um, we're, we're super open and I always promote an open conversation about his past. I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I, I actually really echo that. That sounds, it, it reminds me of the way that we try to approach it because you can't make the past not be true. You can't mm-hmm. make it not have happened. Mm-hmm. So all you can really do is try to walk that path with them. Yeah. But you can't you can't change it. And I think that's that's sometimes... It's sometimes quite difficult and it's sometimes quite hard. How how do you address, obviously without detail because mm-hmm. of your child's privacy, but mm-hmm. just in terms of when a topic is difficult and you want to address it, sometimes when I've had to do that, I feel almost like I'm bursting their safety bubble, if you like. You know, you want to wrap them in the safety and then you have to talk about a thing that isn't safe, that is not a nice thing. And how do you do that and how do you feel when you're doing that? I think it's it's tricky because each child, I guess, they've obviously got a different past and they've they've got different, they're happy with different nuggets of information. My son has got a very big character and personality. He's very inquisitive. He asks a lot of questions, and he he once he's got, he's like a dog with a bone. So he's at that stage now where he just needs to understand exactly what happened why he wasn't able to um, stay where, where he was initially with, with, with birth mum, um, trying to understand, trying to understand the term, couldn't, you know, she couldn't keep you safe. You know, mm. saying that to a five and a half year old or when he was four or four year old, is quite tricky. But at the same time, we just have to repeat our script until he's old enough to maybe have a little bit more information. I'm definitely going to, you know, give him bits of information according to his age, but he unfortunately can't have the full picture now because it is quite complex and I think it's quite difficult for a child of his age to understand. But, you know, he has been going through a tricky period recently. Um, you know, I think what a lot of 
conventional families fail to understand is, you know, the whole world and society is catered to them, that 2.4 children, mum, dad, brother, mm-hmm. sister, cat, dog. Um, and I think when a child doesn't always see that they have that conventional family, it can be quite difficult. Um, you look at books, cartoons, you look at the school gates, and, you know, you do see a lot of conventional families. And I guess because... I'm a single parent, not having a mum is something which is quite apparent to him. Um, so is he missing yes. having a mum or is he just wanting to be like his friends and like the characters in the book and on the cartoons? It, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky one. It is. And it's everywhere, that messaging. You know, mm-hmm. we think that times are moving on, but actually it really isn't. You know, when you try and think of any representation, there is sometimes some diversity represented in kids' stuff, yeah. but not massively and generally not the hero. It's generally the hero's friend that gets to be diverse, you know, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just, yeah, it, it's not really there for, for kids yet, I don't think. Um, no, I understand. And I think, you know, that's why I'm kind of trying to use my position, I guess, as it were, to almost be a platform and an advocate for adoption, single parents, um, promote, you know, diverse families. I think it's really important for people to, even if it doesn't affect your family, just to be aware of it and to have those conversations with your child from, from a young age. I think, you know, I always say if you normalise diversity from a young age, it just becomes so, like it becomes a norm. Like even the word diversity just becomes... We shouldn't even have to use that word. It should just be a diverse society and world, but it's not. Yeah, we talk a lot about in our household about diversity because my kids are mixed race and my partner's Asian and I'm white. And so we chat a lot about diversity and stuff. Obviously, touching on ethnic diversity as well. So you're a black male adopter Mm -hmm. and your son is mixed race, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And my kids are mixed race, but I'm a white adopter. Mm -hmm. I just wonder about your, your experience of discussing that with your child and whether you have discussed that yet in regards to race yeah yeah I mean well because of the events over the summer um with everything that happened with George Floyd on the back of that the whole you know Black Lives Matter movement as it were I had those conversations with him of course and you know he's he's got a few books um the series Big People Big Dreams Little People I'm sure you're probably familiar Mm. with them and there's like Mm. a book in there about um Rosa Parks, like tell, told for a child's obviously eyes. Yeah. Maya Angelou. So I have to have those conversations with him, you know, and and, and you know, I think this is the, the 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 not the problem, but this is a lot of things that a lot of black parents have to do, especially with their boys from from quite a young age, which I know a lot of uh, maybe white or non-black families have to really do in the same way. And obviously, mm. Peter, you, you you know, you come from um, a mixed family, but generally, if you look at like majority of Caucasian families, 2.4 children, they probably would never have a, an, an ongoing or even an isolated conversation about race or injustice. So having to have that with a, a five and a half year old is quite, it's quite tricky because, you know, I, I was very honest when I spoke about the injustices, historical injustices um, to, you know, how police... Oh, and you know people might think oh it's a bit heavy he's only five but he's a black child and therefore when he gets to a certain age he's going to be treated like every other black man before him as, as sad as it yeah. sounds it, it's a reality you know I've been racially profiled I've never been arrested in my life I've been fortunate, fortunate enough to have a very good job um, since I've been in London in my early 20s you know I guess when I'm in my hoodie and my baseball cap turned backwards I, I fit a certain demographic but 
at the same time, it's going to be his reality, as sad as it sounds. And yes, there's a lot of work being done, but I still believe that it's not enough for there to be a change by the time my child's a teenager. And that's quite sad. Yeah, it really is. No, I understand that. Um, so, so I'm white. So I, and I grew up in a really white area. Mm-hmm. I don't remember knowing anyone black as a kid up mm-hmm. to teenage years, really. I don't think I'd ever met anyone black. I don't remember. And so, you know, and now I've got this really diverse family. And when my eldest was little, we were playing in the park and his friends with another black child and some kid came up to them and said, I'm not playing with you two because you're brown. And mm-hmm. he came up to me and asked me what it meant. And in that moment, I knew that I had to answer it. And I knew that in answering it, I had to tell him this truth about the world mm-hmm. that burst everything that was safe, you know, because suddenly it was about there are people, I didn't phrase it like this, but essentially what it boils down to is that there are people who will hate you because of what you are, because of who you are. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, I managed a sentence, I managed to answer the question. And it wasn't the first time I'd thought about it. I knew the questions would come. And I knew that the moments discuss it would come. But he was so little, and he was so, in quotes, innocent, if you like, and everything. Mm-hmm. And it almost stuck in my throat having to do it. And I think that's partly from the privilege of my own background that I'd never had to face it. Um, whereas Jackie, my partner can talk about protesters up and down her street outside her house Mm -hmm. you know essentially racist protests outside Mm -hmm. her house Mm -hmm. and she talks about hiding under the windowsill with her Mm mum as these protesters were shouting abuse and racist stuff and things like that and go home and all that Mm -hmm. now she's got that as a really early childhood memory Mm -hmm. for me that never touched my childhood it just it just wasn't a thing and you know in my childhood it just wasn't Mm -hmm. it it didn't touch my childhood at all it was Mm -hmm. a thing that I simply wasn't aware of um i think that's the problem i think when something doesn't affect you directly it can almost be not that oh it's not important but it just doesn't if it's not on your radar you there might be certain things that may go over your head because it's not something that you're sensitive to or or aware of whereas you know myself your partner and people non-white people essentially it's something which is always there it's always present so if i don't get a job but the first thing is it because I'm black, not because all oh, my mm. credentials not matching. And, and, and I don't want it to come across like, oh, he's got a chip on his shoulder. But that's how we have to think because maybe it is yeah. because you're black. And maybe that might be a unconscious bias from the interviewer. They might just, they may have had an experience or they may not have any people of colour in their workforce and maybe like oh is this a bit different it's just it's so complex race is so complex and it's so deep and you know it is embedded unfortunately into society whether people want to admit it or not look look how people were over the um is it the Sainsbury's advert is it the same? Yeah, absolutely. Whichever one it was, I can't remember. Tesco, maybe. I can't remember. One of them. But, you know, people, one, yeah, one of them. Yeah, people were really going crazy because there was a black family because they dared to, to show a happy, positive representation of a black family around the table at Christmas. And it's like, guys, come on. Like, <laughs> people are talking about boycotting a supermarket. Let's put this into perspective. People are talking about boycotting a supermarket because it showed a black family having what seemed to be a happy time around the table at Christmas. Like how ridiculous is that sounds? And it's quite chilling that as well, isn't it? Because that's the world that you have to send your kids out into. And for all that as adults, we might have our armour about our various issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being gay, being black, being mm-hmm. female, being whatever it is mm-hmm. that you have to put your armour on and face the world. Mm-hmm you hope for your child that it's not going to be that way and yet you send them out into the world knowing it is that way and it's it's quite frightening it is and I think um all, all we can do is take accountability for doing the work 
and to be mm. making changes. And that's what I always say. I know what I'm doing um, and I'm going to maintain that and keep on doing that. Hence why we're having this conversation today. It's so important to show diversity in adoption, especially um, for various reasons. And, um, you know, as I said to you at the beginning of the call, I'm fully aware of my, my difference. I'm a single black gay adopter, you know, who's got a, a platform and, and who's advocating for adoption, but also for black people to become adopters, but also speaking about adoption, adoption issues from a culturally compatible point of view, which isn't always the case. A lot of things we learn by training um, and conversations we have, a lot of it isn't culturally compatible. It is quite white centric. I think it's important to have somebody with a voice and a platform to really speak about stuff quite candidly as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think if we don't see ourselves represented mm-hmm. in something ever, mm-hmm. then it I do think that those that messaging goes in. And so I think it is important that there is that diversity represented and that, you know, people can say, Oh, actually I do know that adoption is an option mm-hmm. for me and exactly. and consider it when they're considering parenthood. Exactly. Because the need's absolutely there. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So are you done at one child? Are you tempted to go again? So I've always, when people have been like, oh, you're not again, I'm always like, nope. <laughs> However, never say never, number one. Mm. A friend of mine, a virtual friend, I've met so many virtual friends this year. It's been fantastic. <laughs> and I have to say, like 2020 has been, it's been, I'm trying to think of a nice term to say, keeping it clean. It's been a difficult year, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and but for 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 some people and and and, and so lots of really positive experiences have come. I made some really good connections. Um, I started a group um, called Black Gay Dads Global, which is on Instagram and Facebook, and essentially it is a, a group for Black and dual heritage gay fathers to come together to have a community again for the purposes of representation and brotherhood because mm. it is different to be a black gay dad single dad do you know what I mean it's it, it's quite complex it's quite nuanced to a lot of other LGBT parents um and I think you know having that community is so important and I've met so many guys who you know through there who I speak to and, and definitely will will go and visit them as and when um, and vice versa um but there's one of them he adopted, he's in the States, he adopted, well, he's fostered his daughter for about a year and a half now. It's very different in the States, to be honest. It's so complex and so long and drawn out. Yes. It really is. It sounds really strange, if I'm honest. But anyway, he's been fostering her for about a year and a half, and he's doing foster to adopt. Um, anyway, the her little girl, his little foster daughter, her mother had a birth sibling a couple of weeks ago, and he's just oh, wow. fostered the birth sibling as well. Now, he's on his own. He's got a very busy career. He works in creative arts. He's got a super busy career, super talented. And he's just like, look, it's a full sibling. And, you know, I want to keep them together. And I just feel like that is so courageous. But also, stories like this don't make the mainstream. And I feel like, again, it's so important to show these positive representations of gay parents, but also gay black fathers or black fathers in general, because... A lot of the um, the representation or a lot of the connotations around black fathers and black men, a lot often is quite negative in the mainstream. I feel like I'm going on a bit of a political rant here, but it is true. And I feel like there's some amazing stories within the network that I have. Like there's one dad that's got five kids. He's a single dad. Um, I think two of them are birthed children. Two are fostered and one's adopted. I think he's going to foster the other two. I mean, you just don't hear stuff like that every day, you know? 
Yes, absolutely. And I don't think it's a rant because it's it's based on the truth. You know, mm. I think it's the representation. Those stories are not told and they're not seen and they are so positive. You know, it's really lovely to see a new family forming. And, you know, when you're talking about your son with so much pride, yeah. it's really lovely because he's found his home. And mm. I mean, that's all we can hope for any child, isn't it, is that they've got somewhere safe to be, somebody who loves them and will fight their corner. And mm-hmm. that's what they all need. And, and that takes so many different forms, you know, yeah. one parent, two parents, three parents, whatever, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It just matters that they've got that, that somebody's got their back, I guess. hundred percent, hundred percent. That's why, that's why, um, that's how it started. That's why it started. So what would your advice be to either other single dads thinking about adoption or to other black single dads thinking about adoption or to anybody thinking about adoption yeah single dads i'd say or single um females i know you're lgbt um organization so you know single females or any single parent wanting to adopt make sure that you have a support network whatever you think your support network is cut it in half and then maybe shave off a little bit as well <laughs> I appreciate everybody's busy. I appreciate everybody has their own lives. But at the same time, that's the one thing that I struggle with. And also, I don't live in the same city as the majority of my family. My, I do have a sister who lives in Essex, um, but that's like half an hour away. Um, but I think not having that local physical support where you can literally say, right, I need some me time. I'm going to drop him off for a couple of hours or overnight while I even you know walk around or go shopping or go for a yeah. drink or a meal with friends, whatever. It's so important. I always harp on about self-care and self-care is really essential. It's so essential, so important. So my, my advice would be above anything, make sure you have a strong, reliable support network, 100%. If it if I was speaking to the, any, for the, to the black community specifically, because I know that there is a, a huge um, disparity in terms of the black families coming forward to adopt, I would say, you know, it is something that we can do. I'm a living testament to that. You know, there's various reasons why we don't come forward culturally, but, you know, look at it as an option into into um, parenthood. And that could be for, you know, heterosexual couples, you know, look at it as an option into parenthood if you have facility issues or or whatever. Like, it shouldn't be seen as something that we don't do as a community, you know, because there are a lot of um, children of colour, dual heritage and black children of colour in the care system. And, you know, they need parents that represent them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really, really nice to talk to you. I'd like to thank my guest today, Leon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook, search New Family Social, or one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.